Well, friends, as we continue through this hour of worship, I'm so excited as we start a brand new sermon series, taking a look at God's vision for us to be faithful followers of Jesus, regardless of what the world looks like around us. We're going to take a look and start with the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, we're not going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, but we're going to take a look at seven different realities, seven different pressure points, seven different fires that Daniel and his contemporaries faced back then that are the same fires that we face today. And we're going to see that God meets us in the midst of those fires and calls us to be faithful in the fire. These seven things are metaphorical fires. And yet in the book of Daniel, there is a actual fire, a literal fire that three people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are faithful in. This will be our starting point every single one of these seven weeks as we jump to each of these seven different metaphorical fires that Daniel and his contemporaries and us today face. And it's important to understand and to start every week with this actual fire that they were faithful in because it gives us a framework for the entirety of the book of Daniel and a framework today for us to follow Jesus. Now, this is found in Daniel uh, chapter uh, 3. In fact, I want to read it. If you would go with me there, this is Daniel chapter 3, verse 19. It says this, Then Nebuchadnezzar was so filled with rage against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face was distorted. He ordered the furnace heated up seven times more than was customary and ordered some of the strongest guards in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them in the furnace of blazing fire. So the men were bound, still wearing their tunics, their trousers, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Because the king's command was urgent and the fire was so overheated, the raging flames killed the men who lifted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But the three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they fell down bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up quickly. He said to his counselors, was it not three men that he threw into the fire? They answered the king, true, O king. And he replied, but I see four men, four, not three, four, unbound, walking in the middle of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the fourth has the appearance of a god. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they came out from the fire and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men, and the hair of their heads were not singed. Their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. They disobeyed the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, make a decree, any people, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. 
This, my friends, the reading of God's word as we say every week, thanks be to God. What's going on here? Why were they just thrown into the blazing fire? The short story, which we will unpack more, not only in this sermon today, but throughout the rest of this seven-week sermon series, is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faithful followers of the God of the Bible. They were Israelites who were now in authority and part of the administration of the Babylonian king. And he ordered all people that when they were in the marketplace and when they saw the 90-foot-high statue that had been erected of of, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, that they would bow down and worship. And these three faithful followers of God refused in public to bow down and worship another god. They would bow down and worship anyone other than the king of kings, lord of lords, the god of the Bible. And so as a result, the punishment for them was to be killed, to be thrown in the fire. And they stand before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he gives them a choice. You either bow down and worship me, you bow down and worship this image, or you're going to die. And they give this remarkable response of faith. This is what it looks like to be faithful all the way up and into the fire. They say, our God is able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we will not bow down and worship you. This remarkable, almost odd way of expressing that God is able to save us, but even if God doesn't. This remarkable truth that they believe that God could do it, but even if God doesn't do it, they wouldn't worship God because of what God would do for them. They would worship God simply for who God is. And they weren't fearful of the fire. They didn't try to fight the fire. They didn't try to avoid the fire, but they were faithful up to and into the fire. And what happened? A fourth met them in the fire, one who looked like a god. Theologians, commentators, historians, myself, many people believe that all the evidence points that the fourth individual wasn't just some person, wasn't some hero, wasn't someone who just looked like a god, but this was the son of God. God in the flesh, the pre-incarnate Jesus, who doesn't fight the fire, who doesn't prevent them from going into the fire, who isn't fearful of the fire himself, but actually enters into the fire with them and in the midst of the fire, in the middle of it, causes them to be unbound, to be free, to walk in the midst of and not be harmed by the fire. And remarkably, it's not the four that emerge from the fire It's only the three. As we will unpack this actual fire over the course of the next seven weeks, it gives us a reality, a picture, a framework for one of the other fires that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego faced. And it's a fire that we face today. Not literal flames, but there is a pressure. There is a a boiling point. Uh, There is a reality that there is the fire of another kingdom that has the potential to destroy us, that has the potential to annihilate us. And this metaphorical fire is found throughout the book of Daniel. And as we understand, as we study the fire of another kingdom that Daniel was faithful in, It actually enables us today to be faithful followers of Jesus, regardless of where we live in the world, regardless of what government we are living under, regardless of what nation, 
regardless of what administration, regardless of what political power is uh, either on the throne or in charge, that there is a reality that we aren't called to fight the fire or fear the fire or avoid the fire, but we're called to be faithful in the fire of another kingdom. So to understand this, we have to have a little bit of historical context. Why was the book of Daniel written? Why were Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, why were they as Jewish men in a foreign kingdom in Babylon? Well, to understand this, you have to understand that in 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian empire, at that point in human history, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful, the richest human being on the planet. When you study world history, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was probably in the top 50 wealthiest, most powerful people in the history of humanity. And King Nebuchadnezzar is the Babylonian king swept in and destroyed and conquered the nation of Israel. Now, what's so interesting is then his strategy to annihilate the Jewish people. You see, some people annihilate a people by annihilating them. Nebuchadnezzar took a different approach. He wanted to annihilate them by assimilating them. And so what he did was he took 10,000 individuals who were the leaders of all the cultural institutions, of the military, of the arts, leaders, politicians, the nobility. Basically, he took 10,000 of the influencers of Israel and brought them to Babylon. Again, this was annihilation through assimilation. The kingdom of Babylon was another kingdom that swept in and dethroned the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of Israel now was powerless. And there was this other power that had come, another kingdom that had come. To say that it was a fire, to say that there was the possibility for destruction uh, is an understatement. And prophets rose up within this group of 10,000. And these were actually false prophets. You can read about these in the book of Jeremiah. And the leader of the false prophets was a guy by the name of Hananiah. Again, follow me here. This is all context that helps us understand the fire of another kingdom in the book of Daniel and what that means for us today. And Hananiah says to the exiles who are now living on the outskirts of Babylon, whatever you do, don't move into Babylon. You've got to stay on the outside. We need to pray against Babylon because they are the enemies. We need to believe that God will come and God will restore our power. God will defeat them as a kingdom and we will go back to Jerusalem and everything will be right. And this will happen in just a matter of a couple of years. In the meantime, stay removed, stay separate. Don't mix in, uh, pray against them, pray uh, that God would destroy them. And yet these were false prophets who weren't speaking on behalf of the God most high and so God gave a vision to Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 29, God's vision for these exiles is given through Jeremiah, and Jeremiah writes a letter to the exile, the 10,000 who are now on the outskirts of Babylon. He writes it from Judah, from the land of the nation of Israel. And the remarkable thing is that God's vision is the complete opposite of Hananiah's vision. 
God's vision is this, that they are called not to stay separate, but to move into Babylon. In chapter 29, I want you to hear this. Verse 4, it begins this way. And we get to perhaps one of the most quoted verses of Bible, uh, a verse that is found perhaps on uh, bumper stickers and magnets and coffee mugs. We get to a verse that for many people is their life verse, but they have no idea the context of that verse. In Jeremiah 29.4, this letter sent to the exiles goes like this, beginning in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. First off, God says, this is all part of my plan. The Babylonian empire isn't something that I am powerless against, that we need to fight against, but in actual fact, I have allowed the Babylonian empire to come and to disrupt your life. I have allowed the Babylonian empire to come in and to dethrone you from power and to subjugate you to their power. I have called you. God says to the exiles, I've called you into exiles. This flew right against the face of Hananiah, completely against the vision, the false vision that that false prophet was giving to God's people, that this wasn't part of God's plan. God's plan was to bring them back into power. God says, no, I have called you into exile. Goes on, verse five, therefore, build houses, live in them, Plant gardens, eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not said them, says the Lord. This remarkable reality where God says, I don't want you to separate. I want you to go into Babylon. And there I want you to multiply, not decrease. I want you to invest in the city. I want you to pray for the city. He even says, I want you to seek its welfare. The Hebrew word is shalom. Seek its peace, seek its prosperity, for in its success, God says, you will find success. You see, there is a temptation to see that the two options are either separate, that was Hananiah's plan, or assimilate, That was Nebuchadnezzar's plan. God says, I want neither for you. There is a third way. You see, when you stay separate, when you as God's people uh, retreat into a Christian enclave and you only listen to Christian music and you only work with Christians, you only hire Christians, uh, you only watch Christian films, you can follow a vision, but it's not God's vision. It's Hananiah's vision. And in doing so, you miss out on the opportunity to hear how God is calling you to be part of something so much bigger. He says, I have called you into exile. But again, it's not to be separate and it's not to assimilate. 
You see, the other opposite end of the spectrum from separation is this, this equally awful thing, which is assimilation. He says, I want you to increase there, not decrease. He says, I don't want you to go into the city and lose your identity. I don't want you to go into the city and begin to worship these false gods. I don't want you to go into the city and lose the vision that I have for your life. I don't want you to go into this city and forget that I am the Lord, that I am the maker of all, that I have called you to be a people who are blessed, to be a blessing for all nations. He says, I want you to increase. And this third way is a vision that God has, that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego live out. And the book of Daniel is a dramatic retelling of what life could look like if you don't choose to separate, nor do you choose to assimilate. And this other kingdom that came in isn't just the Babylonian Empire. There was another kingdom that was actually another fire, and God spoke out equally against it. And it was the the kingdom of Hananiah. It was the kingdom of the false prophets. And God had judgment for them. And he says that if you choose to stay on the outskirts, if you choose to stay separated, you will actually face ruin. Because, God says, I've seen what's happening on the camp outside of Babylon. And while people are being separate, they're actually committing adultery. And so there was this distorted view that Han and I and the false prophets had that the kingdom that we should pray for, the kingdom that we want, isn't a kingdom where God is on the throne, but a kingdom in which we are on the throne. And this other kingdom actually was contrary to the kingdom of God that God wanted them to experience in the city of Babylon. And what's remarkable is God says, I have a bigger plan, I have a bigger purpose, that if you are people identified by me, called by me, loving this city, then you will catch a vision for what I want to do, not only in your life, but also in the lives of the people of Babylon. Okay, so now that we get to the book of Daniel, this is the context. And if we would, let's turn to Daniel chapter 1 as we are introduced to these characters again over the course of these seven weeks. We're going to take a look at, you know, seven different metaphorical fires that they face, that we face today, all through the lens of how God meets us in the midst of that fire. And if you go to Daniel chapter 1, it is this great reminder that it is not just uh, a fairy tale. Uh, this isn't just some narrative made up that is removed from human history, but it finds its actual location in human history in the movement of what God was doing as God called God's people into exile in Babylon. It begins in verse 1 of chapter 1 and goes as such. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. I just told you the story of that background. The Lord let King Jehoiakim of Judah fall into his power. This was all part of God's plan. Nothing happens in this world outside of God's sovereign reign. As well as some of the vessels of the house of God fell into the hands of the Babylonians. They ransacked the place. These, he, King Nebuchadnezzar, brought to the land of Shinar and placed the vessels in the treasury of his gods. Then the king commanded his palace 
master Ashpenaz to bring some of the Israelites of the royal family and of the nobility, young men without physical defect and handsome, versed in every branch of wisdom, endowed with knowledge and insight, and competent to serve in the king's palace. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the royal rations of food and wine, and they were to be educated for three years. So at the end of that time, they would be stationed in the king's court. Among them, among the 10,000, were Daniel, Hananiah, different Hananiah, by the way, Mishanel, and Azariah from the tribe of Judah. The palace master gave them other names. Daniel to be called Belteshazzar, Hananiah to be called Shadrach, Mishael to be called Meshach, and Azariah to be called Abednego. Now this remarkable reality begins the story of Daniel and his three friends. And there's two things that I want to point out here right from the outset that help us to understand how they were faithful in the fire of another kingdom and how we today can be faithful in the fire of any other kingdom, any other human kingdom, any other government, any other place that we might live. How do we be faithful in it, no matter who is in charge of our city, of our state, of our nation, no matter where you live, there's an opportunity to be faithful in it. And the two things have to do with the two names of Daniel and the two kingdoms that we see revealed in the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. First, the two names. This is so fascinating. You know, often we refer to Daniel as Daniel, not Belteshazzar. And we refer to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not as their given Hebrew names, but it's a great reminder that they have both a Hebrew name and a Babylonian name. And all throughout the narrative of the book of Daniel, it goes back and forth between both their Hebrew name and their given Babylonian name. And this is so significant because it shows us that there is an opportunity to not lose our identity as God's people, but not to be separate and not to assimilate as well. Daniel means one who is judged by God. And Belteshazzar means Bel is God. These two names seem to be a contradiction the two names that we refer to Daniel and Belteshazzar, the same person, seem to be a split personality. It doesn't make sense. It seems like how could the God, the maker of heaven and earth, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, how could the one true God be his judge, but also how could his name be one in which this false God, this Babylonian God, Bel, could also be referred to as God? And this is this this mysterious, tricky tension that is neither separation nor is it assimilation. That Daniel was able to live as a follower of God faithfully, and we're going to see this in all the weeks coming up, despite the pressures of worldly education, despite the pressures of social conformity, despite all the pressures that he faced, he clearly kept his distinct identity as a follower of God. His primary identity, if you could say it this way, was Daniel. But how he lived in the city as he caught the vision that God gave God's people through the prophet Jeremiah, it earned him a name 
It earned him a reputation. It earned him a level of respect that he was actually promoted to some of the highest levels of the cabinet, of the administration of King Nebuchadnezzar. And there's this remarkable reality that Daniel catches a vision of that Hananiah, the false prophet, didn't catch. That he thought that we had to just be in relationship with God, removed from everybody else. And this is actually very different than Nebuchadnezzar's vision for Daniel's life, which was to be fully Belteshazzar, that he would lose his Jewish identity, that he would assimilate into Babylonian culture. And Daniel's life was one in which he was a faithful follower of God in the midst of the city. And the invitation for us today is to do the same, that we put our faith and trust in Jesus the Son of God who died for us, who loves us, we are given an identity as God's beloved people. As an adopted child of God, we become a new creation in Christ. No matter what your, your given name is, Scripture says that God knows your name. And it's a name that only God knows, and it's written on God's hand. I believe that one day in the new heavens and new earth, we're going to stand before God, and God is going to give us a name that God has designed for us. And there's this truth that we can catch, though we physically don't see God wherever we go, though as we move out into this world, regardless of where we work, regardless if our boss is a Christian or not, regardless if our coworkers are believers or not, regardless of the people in power at the city, the state, or the, the national level or followers of God or not, that we have an opportunity to find our primary identity, our significance, our worth in who God says we are and to be the best workers in the city, the best bosses in the city, that we show up and we serve, we love, that we don't cop out, uh, we don't come up with excuses, but actually there's an opportunity to be salt and light in a world that God longs for us and calls us to enter into. Even as Jesus says, many, many, many years later after the, uh, the book of Daniel, I have called you to be in the world, but not of it. You see, there's this faithful presence that Daniel was able to have. And as a result, he was entrusted, like I said, to some of the highest levels of governmental oversight. And yet, he always stayed faithful to his God. His primary identity was who God said he was. And yet, he had a reputation that people respected, that people admired. And one of the things that I see in the broader church, not only throughout our country, throughout the world, but also throughout history, is that there is a temptation to veer off of God's vision and to either fall into Hananiah's vision or to fall into Nebuchadnezzar's vision. We can think that the best way we can follow God is to be separate, to be removed, to judge the city, to hate the city, to critique the city, uh, and to have a, an enclave that when things get tough, when people are voted into power that we disagree with, uh, when we don't like the laws that are put, I mean, how applicable is this? Are you kidding me? In 2022, we're going into midterm elections. And there is this view. It is a Hananian view that isn't from God that says we are called to fight the fire. We're called to be fearful of the fire. We're called to avoid the fire. May we catch a vision that God has for us like Jeremiah that we're called to be faithful in the fire. There's this great opportunity to see that God calls us as God's own, 
And God has sent us into this city, into this world to love, to serve, to actually contribute to it. Imagine if we actually understood Jeremiah 29, many people's life first, for I know the plans I have for you, plans for you not to perish, but to prosper. For us to know the context for that verse, it's in Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, look, I've called you into exile. I've called you into a pagan city. I've called you to live among people who don't believe in one God, who have a polytheistic view, have a very relative view of truth. I've called you into that place, and I want you to be faithful in it, for I know the plans I have for you, not to perish in the midst of it, but to prosper. And there's this invitation today to realize that we have an opportunity to be the best citizens on the planet. But this leads to the second point. It's not just two names, but it's two kingdoms that God reveals to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream. Let's go right there. This is found in Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar, right from the get-go, has this dream. He is overwhelmed. Uh, he doesn't know how to interpret it. We'll get into this in more detail in a sermon coming up in a couple of weeks called The Fire of Discernment. But there are enchanters, there are sorcerers, there are magicians who try to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and nobody can interpret it until God gives Daniel the vision for what this dream actually means. And this is when Daniel goes before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he shares what this dream actually means. And it actually gives us, in the same way that there are two names that help us live in the tension of being called out as followers of God, faithful in a city that doesn't believe in God. These two kingdoms cause us to realize that these two kingdoms exist at the same time. In verse 31 of chapter 2, Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar as follows, You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue, and that statue was huge. It's brilliance, extraordinary it was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of that statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle, its torso and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this remarkable vision that caused... Nebuchadnezzar, such horror. Daniel had great clarity. And this image for Nebuchadnezzar wasn't just an image for him, but it's actually an image for every human being on the planet. You see, this statue goes from the strongest material, the most valuable material from the top, all the way to the weakest material at its foundation. It starts with gold, goes to silver, then bronze, then iron, then clay. In some ways, there is this brilliance of this statue that has a foundation that is weak. 
And God was telling Nebuchadnezzar that your kingdom might look brilliant. It might have power. It might have sheen. It might be the most powerful kingdom on the planet. It might radiate like gold. It might shine like silver. It might have strength like bronze. It might be forged like iron in the fire. Yet at its foundation is simply clay. And ultimately, there is another stone, not cut by human hands, that is very small, that actually confronts, that actually strikes, not at the top, not at the chest, not at the torso, not at the legs, but strikes the feet, strikes the foundation of this statue and breaks it to pieces. Now, a stone, perhaps in relation to clay, in relation to iron, in relation to bronze, in relation to silver, in relation to gold, is the least valuable element of all. However, this stone in the dream was not built by human hands. And though small, it confronts and destroys this statue that represents the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, built on the wrong and weak foundation. And that stone, not built by human hands, begins to grow and grow and become a mountain that fills the entire earth. And this imagery is unpacked, and we don't have the time to go into all the details, but ultimately what God is saying is that there is a stone not built by human hands that confronts not just King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, but confronts all the kingdoms of this world that are built on a weak foundation. And in doing so, this stone, though seemingly weak, though seemingly small, though seemingly invaluable, begins to grow and grow and grow to be a mountain that covers the entirety of the earth. This dream reveals that there are ultimately two kingdoms in this world. There is the kingdom of humanity and the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of humanity is represented as a statue with the wrong foundation. And the kingdom of God is represented as a stone, though seemingly invaluable and small at first, grows and grows and grows and ultimately covers the entirety of the earth. And this kingdom and this image of a kingdom of humanity, a kingdom of, uh, of the world, doesn't just apply to Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't just apply to nations, doesn't just apply to, to governments, but actually applies to every single human being on the planet. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, we either serve one of two kingdoms. We either serve the kingdom of ourselves, of humanity, or the kingdom of God. And Nebuchadnezzar on the outside, it looked very uh, clear that this was a kingdom that was counter to the kingdom of God. But remember, if you go back with me to Jeremiah, Hananiah's vision of the kingdom on the surface looked like the same kingdom that had God on the throne, but it wasn't. It was equally apart from God's vision for the kingdom that we were called to advance, to experience, to live into. You see, there was the kingdom of Babylon, but Hananiah's vision was a kingdom, not of God, but a kingdom of Israel, of Israel being in power, of Israel being in dominance. And ultimately, that kingdom was another kingdom. It wasn't the kingdom of God. And God longed for God's people to catch a vision that no matter what kingdom they're a part of, they have an opportunity to catch the vision for God's kingdom here and now. 
And ultimately, every human kingdom will be destroyed, Scripture says. Every human kingdom will be reduced to pieces that ultimately will blow away in the wind and will exist no more. But another kingdom that starts small and grows to cover the whole earth will always exist throughout eternity. And so remarkable that when we get through Scripture, that one of the metaphors that is used for Jesus is the stone the builders rejected. One of the metaphors for Jesus is that he is the rock of our salvation. Coming from perhaps on the outside, uh, a small backwater. What good can come from Nazareth, as it was said in the New Testament? Jesus came from the most unlikely of places. And ultimately, Jesus was the stone that not only struck the worldly kingdoms, but went toe-to-toe against death and sin and Satan itself. And this remarkable truth that wherever Jesus went, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And yet the kingdom doesn't come all at once in power. The kingdom of God starts small and begins to grow. And scripture says here in Daniel that one day it will cover the entire earth. You see, a Hananian view of the kingdom is that it's got to be all here right now in totality. But the kingdom of God is an already but not yet reality that coexists alongside the kingdoms of this world. And so this vision that Daniel had for the reality of the time in which they lived was that the kingdom of God could be experienced in the midst of the kingdom of humanity. Perhaps the best definition, the best working definition I have of the kingdom of God is this. It's the experience of God as king in every area of our life. And there's actually an opportunity to experience God as king in every area of your life, regardless of which nation you live in, at what point in human history you live in, no matter which political parties in power, whether you agree with the government or not, whether people in governmental offices believe in God or not, there's an actuality that you can experience the kingdom of God. God is king in every area of your life. And Daniel shows us how to do that because he had, you could say it this way, he had dual citizenship. He was a kingdom of heaven while also a kingdom on earth. The apostle Paul many centuries later says that we are citizens of heaven. I love that over my shoulder in our sanctuary, we have two flags and it actually, it kind of represents for us here locally at Bel Air Church, the fact that we have dual citizenship. There's the Christian flag and there's the American flag. And regardless of where you live in the world, whether in Mexico, in Uzbekistan, in Malaysia, wherever you live. In a sense, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have dual citizenship. The key is, which is the primary citizenship that informs the other? You see, Daniel shows us that God's vision isn't to have our earthly citizenship informing our heavenly citizenship but rather our heavenly citizenship informs our earthly citizenship, that we can be heavenly minded while also being the most earthly good. This is why his identity, his citizenship came from God, but it enabled him to live out this truth on the planet. This Christian flag that we have in the sanctuary reminds us that that is our primary identity, our primary citizenship, that we have a king that will never be voted out, that we have a government that never will be shaken, that God is on the throne of our lives. And regardless of which earthly kingdom, which government 
administration is currently in place, no matter what happens in the future, in the short term or in the long term, Jesus is on the throne. But also this American flag for us in the sanctuary reminds us that this is where we are called to faithfully follow Jesus. This is the city of Los Angeles. This is the nation that we are called to pray for, that we are called to seek its peace, to seek its prosperity, that we are called to build houses, that we are called to plant gardens, that we are called to increase and not decrease. We are not called to separate. We are not called to assimilate. We were called to be faithful in the fire as citizens of heaven called by God. This is a lot easier than it sounds. And even if it sounds hard, I'm telling you, it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live in love in the way that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And so as we continue through this worship service, I pray that you would turn to God, that you would ask for help, that you would ask for wisdom, that you would find ultimately in God a vision for your life to be faithful in the city, in the context in which you live. Know that God has called you to this place, that he has a plan and purpose for your life, and that it's for the flourishing, not only for you, but for the flourishing of those around. Let's pray as we continue in worship. God, I thank you that you have a vision for our life that transcends a separatist or an assimilated view. I pray that you would give us a vision for this third way, that we would follow in the footsteps of Daniel, that we would hear the words of Jeremiah, that we would seek the peace and the prosperity of the land in which you have called us to. May we be seen as people who love you most of all and love our neighbors ourselves. In Jesus' name I pray, we sit together, amen.